following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Okay, uh, good evening everyone. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, please. We're studying in Matthew's Gospel these days and uh, have been actually since about one year ago, uh, maybe a little less than a year, but... Around Christmas time last year, I began a series in Matthew chapter 1, looking at the birth narrative, and we've just kind of whittled away at it, so we're up to the uh, near the end of chapter 11 now, which is amazing because there's more chapters to go than 11, <laughs> so we're not even halfway through. So uh, this is an interesting message tonight, and I titled it Sovereignty and Responsibility, uh, which is a common pair of phrases but you might not have thought of Matthew chapter 1 as, or rather 11, Matthew chapter 11 as having to do with God's sovereignty and man's uh, responsibility. But for now, I just put that title on there because uh, the text reminded me of that theme. And actually, in uh, my translations that I was looking at, the remainder of chapter 11, where we are, verses 25 through 30, are a single paragraph. However, that is a little misleading because there are two subject matters here, two themes, if you will, in uh, the first three verses and then the second three verses. They are distinct from one another. The first is a prayer, prayer of Jesus to the Father. The second is an invitation from Jesus to the crowds to come to him. And so we will look at the first part of that this evening and see uh, how far we get. Now we see this same uh, material from 25 to 27 in Luke chapter 10. But Luke stops at verse 21, Luke 10, 21, with uh, what would be the equivalent of verse 27 here and then goes on to another subject matter, does not have this offer of, you know, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. doesn't have that. That only occurs in Matthew's gospel. But it is, even though only in one synoptic gospel, one of the most beloved portions of scripture because of its tender and invitational tone. You know, the gospel sometimes is presented, and truly so, as a, as a command and as a hard, with a hard edge, if you will. You know, repent and believe or else you'll perish. And that's appropriate for people who are hard-headed, if you will. But then there are those people who are of softer or tender conscience who maybe they realize that they're in, you know, deep trouble. And they don't, they don't know what to do with their sin. They, they, they know that they've offended God, and, but what do I do? They're like out in left field as far as the information necessary for the sake of the gospel. And then they, and they come and they, they hear a message like 28 through 30, Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Maybe they've been working all their lives to try to please God because they know God to some extent and they know that they're not following Him properly. Um, and... They just need help. They need that tender, compassionate invitation from the Lord. And so that's why it's such a beloved section. But we'll come to that in uh, due course. We're first going to deal with 25 through 27. And it says these words, 
lengthy verse uh, 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes, that is, or infants or children. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. You notice that I prayed like that tonight, praying for one soul to be saved, that God would reveal himself to that one through the Son. This small prayer of our Lord, as I hope you recognize now, is a prayer of Christ, is not as well known as John 17. You know what John 17 is called? The high priestly prayer. Remember that? That's a lengthy prayer of our Lord to the Father in the upper room discourse. But this is a little high priestly prayer, which is tucked away here and almost overlooked because people rush on to verse 28 and they want to you know, feel that invitation and, and happy, uh, tender thing from the Lord to uh, come to Him and be at rest. But uh, this is a prayer of the Lord in it. He speaks to His Father. You know, just like He taught us in chapter 6, verse 9. Remember what He said when the disciples, well... They other places ask, teach us to pray, but he said, pray this way, our Father. Now that, that's been kind of corrupted because, you know, the Catholic Church has taken the Our Fathers, right? And of course, the Hail Marys to go along with it, but the Our Fathers. That phrase has become kind of a, a mechanistic thing, hasn't it? A ritual, an over and over repeated kind of Thing, But if you stop and think about the words of that, specifically that second word, our Father, what deity do you go up to and address as Father? Even in the Old Testament, addressing God, who is the Father, uh, you don't see that too often. Sometimes you do. He's the Father of Israel, sons of the sons of Israel, but not like this. This is intimate. This is, personal. this is a relationship that we have with God. And Jesus, as well, as he instructed in Matthew 6, 9, models for the disciples and says that he's addressing, it says that he's addressing his Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Uh, notice, by the way, I don't have this in the notes tonight, but uh, in fact, those, I think, will be made available probably on the weekend. They're not available, unfortunately, on the website yet, but... Uh, notice that he starts out his prayer with, I thank you. I thank you. That's a good word, isn't it? Good pattern for us to pray. I thank you, Father. The personal nature of this address denotes closeness to God in prayer. The formal liturgical kind of prayer cannot have this familial feel to it. And those prayers, although sometimes appropriate and necessary, um, we have a personal relationship with God as believers. And then the Son of God, Jesus, has a very close personal relationship with the Father, and that permits him to give this kind of address, you know, this kind of invocation to God by calling him Father. And then he says in verse number 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. It's obvious to us, but there is only one Lord of heaven and earth. It is God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God as well, but here specifically denoted by the Father, He's the Lord of heaven and earth. What did Jonah say when he was uh, asked who, who, what God he serves? He's the God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas. That really set those sailors afright because they said, uh-oh, the God of the sea, you've displeased him, we're sunk, literally. So they threw him overboard and uh, the seas ceased their raging because God was appeased by that and uh, in, a, in a different way than, say, the deities are appeased by some sacrifice because Jonah wasn't sacrificed, of course. He was swallowed by a, a great fish and then spit out on the dry land sometime later. But Lord of heaven and earth, he's the one who is not only the creator of heaven and earth, which is kind of what I've focused on here, but he's the boss of it. He's the Lord of it, and he's the Lord of Christians too, and he's the Lord of non-Christians as well. You know that? Yeah, he, uh, Isaiah and chat in the 40th, somewhere in the 40s, talks about him uh, using Cyrus as his servant. Cyrus, a pagan who did not know God, was the servant of God. God uses everybody in the way that he pleases to do so. Then Jesus goes on in his prayer. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Now, this is where we get into the real meat of what is going on here? First of all, these things have been hidden from certain people. These include Jesus' identity and his unfolding teaching to the people of Israel. Now, what does this include specifically? His offer of the kingdom, uh, his call for repentance and faith, and his miracle work to authenticate him as the Son of God. That's some of it. These things, he's, he's preaching, he's teaching, and there are people who are seeing, they are seeing the impossible. The dead are being raised, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, mute speak, lame leap. They see the impossible, and yet they do nothing about it. It's shocking, really. Although not envisioned here specifically because of the constraint of, of the particular context, I think this does also include the future revelation of God, the concept of it. Uh, all of what God has revealed is part of these things that God has been pleased to hide from those certain ones that we'll look at in just a moment. It's hidden from the so-called wise and prudent. And you, you immediately come into a an issue like, okay, if this is about Jesus, if it's about the kingdom, if it's about repentance and faith, it must be about salvation. Why is God hiding this? What is going on here? How does he hide these things? Well, the Bible gives us a couple of answers uh, to the how he hides them. First, God permits the sin that is in each one's own heart to carry them away from these things these revelations of God. He gives people over to their own corrupt desires and they get what they want. In other words, they love that the things of God are hidden from their eyes because they don't want them. They hate them. You know, it's like the atheist who says, 
I don't believe in God and I hate him. They don't, he doesn't understand that you can't make that, those two statements side by side with one another and be logically consistent. I don't believe in God, but I hate him. Either he is or he isn't. If he doesn't exist, you can't hate something that doesn't exist. Well, I suppose they could say, I hate the concept of him. Well, there's more than a concept. But anyway, God permits the sin that's in their hearts to blind them to the truth. Secondly, God permits Satan to blind the minds of those that do not believe. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and also in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Scripture mentions this very thing, and that's, of course, where I pulled it from. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the uh, speaks of those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Second Corinthians uh, 3.14 says their minds were blinded. The veil remains there over them. So in, in some, what I'd say is not only God permits the sin inside of each person, to blind them, but also Satan to blind the minds of those who do not believe. By the way, Satan has a vested interest because of his own evil reasoning to drag away from God as many souls as he can. He wants to rule over them and take them down to perdition. But we can say with confidence that God does not hide his truth directly in some sinful kind of manner. Ultimately, he is the cause of this, because God is the cause of everything, isn't he, ultimately? He's the creator of all things. He ordered things the way that they were, but he's not culpable for sin. But he has, in a, in a kind of manner of speaking, you know, like we say this kind of thing all the time, God made you. Well, that's, that's a shortened form of saying God made Adam and Eve and designed into them all of the stuff that's necessary to pass on to generation, to generation, to generation, everything that landed up in you and he arranged all the circumstances and all of the parents and grandparents and great-grandparents so that you would come about. But we just shorthand all that by saying, you're created by God. You are a special creation of God. And here it's saying that same sort of thing without going through all the intermediate steps, it's just saying God has hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. Now who exactly are these people from whom God has hidden the truth? They're the ones who reject Christ. We've already seen a couple examples of this, actually several. Uh, one is Herod. Herod rejected the message of Christ and the message of John, had John killed. We saw another example at the uh, earlier part of our analysis of this chapter where uh, the Lord talks about this generation. Whom shall I liken this generation to? It's like children sitting in the marketplace, remember? We played the flute, but you did not dance. We mourned, and you did not lament. In other words, no matter what approach God would use with them, he could send the ascetic baptizer in the wilderness who eats locusts and wild honey and a very, you know, very seemingly religious uh, kind of person, very odd in a way, and uh, they didn't like him because they didn't like his message, see? And then... Uh, and they probably didn't like him as a person either. And then God says, okay, you don't like that? I'll send to you another one, my, my dear son. And he'll be one who works miracles and goes out among the people and lives with sinners and ministers the gospel and does 
all kinds of miracles, and, and they didn't like him either. So what are you going to do? You know? You tried the potatoes boiled, and you tried them fried, and you didn't like them. So what, what else is there, you know? There's only a certain number of variations on the theme. The doctrine is repentance. You either accept it or you don't, whatever form it comes in. And so this was just generation, implacable, as the Scripture says. And then there are those who refuse to repent even in the light. This is light, by the way, light of Jesus coming into their midst. He was the light that lightens up every man that comes into the world. He is the light of God holy, harmful, harmless, undefiled. Before God, no sin in him. He did not speak a bad word, never did a bad thing. Undefiled before God and men. And he comes into these cities and he works these massive, massive miracles. And yet they refused to repent. And so the Lord said of them in 11:20 to 24 in the section we just were in, you folks are going to have it worse than Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon. You are in big time trouble facing eternal judgment worse than those cities of renown for their wickedness in the Old Testament. Because the son of God himself came into your cities and preached and did miracles and you refused him. That's how hard-hearted people are. You know, we wonder, like, how can so many people today think abortion is okay? How can so many people today think that calling white people evil is okay just because they're white? How, 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 how does that work? Well, it's this, it's this. Depravity blinds the minds of those that believe not. They can't think straight about the gospel, and they can't think straight about many other things, too. And it's a sad state of affairs, but you know, you're not going to argue those people into submission. You're not going to convince them by persuasive arguments into the kingdom. They need to have their eyes open, the scales to fall off. They need to have, a, in essence, a Damascus Road experience. God has to reveal himself to them. Otherwise, they'll keep... I mean, even if he does reveal himself to them. You can remember the story Tom McParland said about his friend who said, if I, even if I saw Jesus at this very table, I still would not believe in him. Man, the hardness of heart that that is. That's what these people were exhibiting in the face of direct divine intervention. I mean... We saw, you see this throughout the scriptures. You, know, you, you see the children of Israel go through the Red Sea on dry ground, water on the right and on the left. And what do the Egyptians do? Now, if it were me, of course, you know, I'm so smart and you know, all that, I, I'd sit back there and I'd say, now, wait a minute. There's water over there and there's water over there. I'm not going in there. I, I don't like water, okay? I'm just going to sit here and see what happens. But that's not what they did. Pharaoh said, go after them. I want them dead. His heart was hardened. So were these people. Wise and intelligent people, Jesus says. Look at the verse again. Matthew chapter 11. It says, You, God, have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Now, when he says wise and prudent, 
may I give you a, um, a way of thinking about that? Put little quotation marks around it in your Bible if you're somebody who writes in your Bible. The wise and the prudent. You know, the wise and the prudent don't get these things. They're not really wise and they're not really prudent because wisdom starts with the fear of God, right? But Jesus is using the terms in terms of what the world estimates these people to be. They're famous, they're influential, they're power brokers, they're scientists, they're highly educated, politicians, lawyers, whatever things, uh, doctors that the world esteems, that's what these people are, intelligent and wise people. I was going to read, but we don't really have a lot of time. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 19 to 29, where the passage, Paul talks to the Corinthians and says, look, the gospel is foolishness to those that are perishing. The gospel is foolishness, uh, and, and it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, um, but the wisdom of God or the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. God delights to do things backwards from men. In fact, he doesn't do things backwards. Men have made things backwards, and they look at things the wrong way. Let's think about the, the wise and the prudent. They're, for a moment, they're self-reliant. They don't need God. They're self-righteous. They're good people, they think. I said famous, wealthy, influential, but the wise think in a limited two-dimensionality, if you will, uh, in the plane of human existence and human relationships and the world. Now, why I say it that way will become clear in a moment. They kind of think by what they see. Their argument, say, against God is a naturalistic argument. They just say, whatever is, whatever we can test, touch, taste, smell, think about rationalism, uh, test uh, empiricism. You know, their thinking is on this two-dimensional realm. They're just thinking in that way. But the simple or the babes are actually wiser than that because they have three-dimensional thinking. Now, I'm using two-dimensional and three-dimensional as an analogy, Okay. The people of the world think the world. The people of God think two dimensions and a third dimension. You get the point? They see things much differently because they see the fullness of the dimensionality of God's creation, of who He is. They recognize these ones that they are helpless and and dependent upon God and spiritual things. They might be simple in the eyes of the world, but they're highly esteemed in the eyes of God. Psalm 119.99 says that they are wiser than their teachers. They have more understanding than those who teach them. I've used that verse with our boys and perhaps with you from time to time. You might have somebody who is an expert in a field, you know, of science or, or archaeology or history or something, and they might have very nice information in an area. But in the sense that you have the three-dimensional aspect of your thinking, you are wiser than your teacher. They're stuck in the two-dimensional realm of this world instead of understanding the other 
realm of the supernatural. Um, Now, when it says babes, you have revealed these things to babes. This is little children. Um, It's like chapter 10, verse 42, I think it was. Yeah, whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water in my name, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Those little ones, it's a different Greek word, but it's the same idea. We're not really talking about babes in the, in the sense of the modern English use of the word in, in, in our language. We're not thinking of them as babies physically either, but we're thinking about inf- infants or little children in terms of their dependency on God. The, each and every disciple like us, if we're followers of Christ, are little ones, are little ones of, uh, that belong to God. And uh, small in the eyes of the world, little in the eyes of the world, but great in stature in the sight of God. Okay, so that is what we are. Now, you in your humility, I in mine, have been blessed to have these things revealed to us. There's no reason in yourself that God must do that or should have done that. God in His grace revealed to you these things about Christ, about the gospel, about the kingdom, about repentance, about faith, all of the gospel, all of the revelation of God He's revealed to you. Now, there's a related passage in Matthew 13 we'll come to in a couple chapters, and that says that Jesus began to speak in parables. And when he spoke in parables, it had two purposes. Number one, to reveal the truth to those who were seeking it. And number two, to hide the truth from those who were rejecting him. So it had a judgmental purpose, these parables, but it also had the purpose of revelation to his people. Now, why is all of this? Why did why does Jesus say, thank you that you've hidden these things from you know, the worldly people and you've revealed them to humble people. Verse 26 gives the reason. Even so, in other words, it is this way, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. For it seemed good in your sight. If there's no other reason, if there's no other reason at all, this reason is sufficient. God thought it good to do it this way. God thought it good to do it this way. The hiding of things from smarty pants and revealing them to humble and lowly people is a delight to God. And after all, God does do what he pleases, doesn't he? Daniel 4, 34 and 35, Nebuchadnezzar of all people recognizes that God rules over the kingdoms of men and he does whatever he pleases. The nations are before him as a drop in the bucket. Scripture says elsewhere, like dust on a scale, insignificant. God does what he pleases. Now, one of those wise people, those smarty pants, as I pejoratively called them just now, will object, undoubtedly. How is it good that God is hiding these things? How can the Lord thank the Father? How can Jesus thank the Father for doing this? Isn't it a bad thing to hide the revealed truth of God? You know, this seems so mean or so wrong or so immoral. But when you look at the unbeliever's approach to life, you recognize that they do not want the things of God. Why should God reveal those things to them if they don't want them in the first place? 
the things of God that God has revealed, for example, his eternal Godhead, his deity, his power in the creation outside, in the conscience on the inside, the the natural man rejects even that information about God. You know, he looks to the stars and says the Big Bang, and he looks inward and he says, evolution made me like this. Rejecting the obvious that God is the creator of all things and thus the Lord of heaven and earth. They don't want the things of God. They despise the things of God. So what difference does it make if God hides the true significance of, quote, these things, unquote? It's good that God does this because the fact is God always does good. Genesis 18.25, the judge of all the earth always does right. Whatever he does is justice and righteousness. But there's another explanation, an additional explanation to this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.29. We will turn to this. That was the ending of the portion that I said I would read if we had had more time. 1 Corinthians 1. It talks about God revealing uh, or choosing the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and the things, the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Here's the point, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. No flesh should glory in the presence of God. God is pleased to hide these things from the wise and the prudent in, other, in order that they would not boast because of their superior wisdom and intellect and prudence or uh, intelligence, or whatever. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 2 says, Salvation is by faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. Romans 4.2 says, Abraham was not justified by works, lest he have something to boast about. And so God has arranged things so that all are under sin, all are guilty before God, so that he can have mercy upon all through faith in Christ so that, and also that they would not be able to boast about what they have done. Now, uh, let's see. <laughs> run out of time here, unfortunately. Let me just touch on 28 with you, just not leave you totally hanging. To, uh, sorry, 20. Uh, 27, Um, it says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. What the Lord is saying here is that He is the, capital M, middleman between God and humanity. Um, Remember 1 Timothy 2.5? There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He's saying that here and and other things he's saying as well. He's saying that there's a special mutual personal relationship between the Son and the Father, which we'll look at next time. That mutual relationship that they share is such that the Father exhaustively knows the Son and the Son exhaustively knows the Father But nobody from the outside can penetrate into that and know like they know each other. It's impossible. But there is one little slice of a window into this mutual personal relationship, and that is at the end of 27. 
Nobody can know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. In other words, the reason that you know God is because Jesus, the Son of God, willed for you to know Him. So when you combine this with a passage like John chapter 6, 44, that says no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws Him, you've got a situation where the reason you're in your seat as a saved person today is because one, the Father drew you to the Son, and two, the Son then in turn willed that you would know the Father and He revealed the Father to you. And how did He do that? Well, in Hebrews chapter 1, we read on Sunday that God in these last days has revealed Himself through His Son. The Son wills to reveal the Father to you. There's a personal interaction relationship that's going on there is extremely powerful to think about. And I'll leave you with this thought. Although this passage is not as well known as John chapter 17, it is the little high priestly prayer. It's also not as well known as another very well-known passage in John 14 verse 6, which says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This passage of Scripture says basically the same thing. You're not going to get to the Father. You're not going to know the Father unless I will to reveal Him to you. Now, that's not to, not to kind of focus on the exclusivity of the gospel or the, the, narrow, the narrowness of the, or the fewness of the number of people. It's just to focus on the blessedness of you if you're a believer. You know God because Christ willed for you to know Him. And you are among that group of people who are the simple the babes, the infants, the children, because he has worked that upon you. And thank God that you're not in the wise and prudent category because that's not a good place to be. You don't want to be self-sufficient and uh, all wise in your own eyes, but rather wise in the sight of God by fearing him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have enjoyed looking at this portion of scripture tonight, and I pray that you would help us to revel in it, to think about it, to enjoy the the blessing that it is to, although the world looks down upon Christians and sees us to be small in their sight, this is a delight to you because you don't want us to boast. And we don't boast, Lord. We don't have any reason to boast. We are humble, lowly servants that you have redeemed by your pure grace drawing us to the Son, the Son showing us the Father, and thus we have a personal relationship in which we can, like Jesus, pray, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have revealed these things to me, to us, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May God bless that reading and exposition of his word tonight. If if you're online, thank you for participating with us tonight. Hope it's uh, been an encouragement to you. And uh, we trust that God will bless you. Safe travels to those of you that are here. And see you again soon. Amen.